Second Kings chapter 14, verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. Moving on to Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. This ends the reading of God's word. Open your Bibles to Jonah, the book of Jonah. Now what we're going to do is spend the next, I don't know, eight weeks, I suppose, studying the book of Jonah. But today... I want to read the entire book of Jonah, and then we will have an overview this morning, an introduction to the book of Jonah, with many applicable parts for us this morning. Book of Jonah, chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise. Go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, how is it that you are sleeping? Get up. Call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? Chapter 1, verse 9. He said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, and then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. 
So they called on the Lord and they said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. And then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the stomach of the fish. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I've been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with, it, with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three days walk. And then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. They called the fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for which I knew you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it, and there he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head to deliver him from this discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. 
But God appointed a worm. When dawn came the next day, it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. And then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? Since the reading of Jonah, you just read through a book of the Bible. And let's pray that God will bless our time now in the study of it. Father, we thank you for your sovereign rule and reign over all things. We thank you for your divine word. We thank you for your holy presence. And we ask now that you would minister by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit to your people, that you would empower and enable me to communicate your truth with clarity and Holy Spirit power, that you would breathe life into those that are spiritually dead today, those who do not have a saving relationship with you, those people who are religious but not believers. And for your people, the church, may they be built up and encouraged through the teaching of your word this day for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. In the Hebrew Bible, Juna is grouped with 11 other prophets known as the Minor Prophets, and you have, no doubt, heard that designation before. But it's not because some prophets were more important than others that they're referred to as minor and others as major prophets. Those designations have to do with the length of the book and not their importance. For instance, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Daniel, referred to as the major prophets, were long enough to require their own scroll. Therefore, they were referred to as major. The 12 smaller books placed together, the minor prophets, were referred to and known collectively as the 12 And as such, they were regarded by the people as 12 separate prophecies, or not really as 12 separate prophecies, but one prophetic truth that unfolds itself in 12 different ways. Encompassing a stretch of time of about 300 years. Revealing God to be a God who keeps His promises. whether they be promises of divine blessing or pledges of justice. He will hold fast to his truth. What he says will come to pass. And Jonah reveals for us that God is determined to keep his ancient promise. The promise given to Abraham, which repeats itself in various ways, in various forms, throughout all of Scripture, and that is that through the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be 
blessed. Now, Jonah's prophecy is particularly unusual because there are only five words of proclamation in the whole book, which we just read. Whereas the rest is biographical. And it's most unusual because of the, rec- the uh, recorded miracles within it. Strange. As you probably know, the book of Jonah has had its fair share of critics over time. Some say it should be read as a fable, a myth, you know, an allegory. Some refer to it as though it should be read as a parable. And to support their interpretation, they cite the miraculous storm, the description of the great fish, the size of Nineveh, and the speed in which the people of Nineveh repented before the Lord. This quick-growing vine, this little worm that destroyed the vine in one night. It's just a parable. Augustine wrote, when he read Jonah his congregation in the 5th century, there was a stir of laughter among his people. This story is no fable. This is no myth, beloved. This is not to be read like a parable. It's too long. It's too detailed. It's too personal. It it regards a specific time in history with a real city, real sinners, saved by real grace. And more important than anyone's personal analysis of the book of Jonah is the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ treated Jonah as historic. If you want to edit Jonah, you're editing Jesus. If you edit Jesus, you edit God. And you have a problem. (laughs) You see, Jonah, the book of Jonah, was purposed to be a type of our Lord's resurrection from the dead. After being in the grave three days and three nights, he would spring forth in power. Jesus said, only a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. But most assuredly, I say to you, there'll be no sign given to this generation other than the sign of the prophet Jonah, who was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. Or the sea monster, depending on your translation. Whereas the repentance of the Ninevites anticipates this wide-scale repentance of Gentiles in the Messianic era. So there's much to this glorious prophecy. You see, the greatest miracle of God, you never want to forget this, the greatest miracle of God is that he makes rebellious sinners children of God. He turns sinners into kings and priests. He changes their disposition to love what they hate and to hate what they love as sinners. Transforming them into children of God. And if you're a Christian, that's what you are. A supernatural work of God has been wrought in you. You had nothing to do with it. It was the sovereign work of God to bring you to himself and transform you. That's regeneration. That's what it is to be born again from above. Jesus said, unless a man be born again from above, he cannot see the kingdom. And once we accept the fact that God changes lives 
so radically, the miracles of nature become much less spectacular. Do they not? I mean, the spiritual birth of a sinner? One who runs in direct opposition of God? One who blasphemes God and then becomes a minister of God? There's no greater miracle than that, beloved. That's greater in my mind than God speaking and the universe coming into existence. He turns children of hell into heirs of heaven. And so we trust that the doubts of men in the book of Jonah will not trouble us over the next seven or eight weeks. Amen? Amen. For to know the author of this blessed book is to have all doubts removed with trust and reliance upon His every word. Now, a little background. We're going to go on and look at this verse by verse over the weeks, but today I want to lay the groundwork. Uh, Many points of application this morning. But in Old Testament days, God had intended for Israel to be a missionary people. They had a mission. A specific call, a specific role. They were formed by God, they were commissioned by God to communicate the truth of God to all nations, to all people. They were Israel, God's elect. 1 Chronicles 16.23 reads, Sing to the Lord all the earth, proclaim good tidings of His what, beloved? His salvation from day to day. There was no problem discerning what their task was. It was quite obvious. Psalm 1849. Therefore I will give thanks to you among the nations, O Lord, and I will sing praises to your name. Give thanks to you among the nations. He gave them a direct command. We read in Psalm 96.3, Tell of His glory among the nations, His wonderful deeds among all the peoples. God Himself said to the prophet Isaiah, Chapter 43, verse 21. The people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. It's their purpose. And so Israel was to speak and to live as a missionary nation. God's vehicle of of communicating to the Gentile world. And then out of the nation of Israel, in addition to the general responsibility of every Jew, was the specific responsibility of certain men called specifically by God for a specific purpose, and they in turn would become the very mouthpiece of God, known as the prophets of God. Separated for this great work. Commissioned to a particular missionary ministry. Jonah is one of those men. Not long after the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, another prophet came into the scene from the northern kingdom of Israel during the rule of Jeroboam II. See it in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. You can mark that and check it later. His name was Jonah, son of Amittai, from Gath-Hefer, near Nazareth. What do the Pharisees say in Jesus' day? No prophets ever come out of Nazareth. Jesus was the prophet of all prophets, number one. And Jonah was a prophet who came out of the region of Nazareth. Jonah chapter 1, verse 2. The the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Arise. Get up. 
Go to Nineveh, that great city. Cry against it, for their wickedness has come up against me. But Jonah does not want to go. But Jonah will not go in his mind. Get that? In his mind. Jonah refuses to obey God. Why? Was he a Frady prophet? Some background on Nineveh, the place he was called to go. History tells us that the Ninevites, the Assyrian people, were cruel. They were heartless. They thought nothing of burying their enemies alive. They thought nothing of skinning their enemies alive. They thought nothing of impaling their enemies on a pole, a sharp pole. I mean, impaling them and allowing them to scream their last hours of life in unspeakable pain in the hot sun. How would you like to go like that? They would take cities by storm. They were a ruthless people. They would leave the streets and marketplaces strewn with dead bodies. Many cities would fling their gates open to the Assyrians out of sheer terror as they would be uprooted and deported. Women taken away into slavery and much worse. Children dashed against the stones. And the cities that dared to resist the opposition of Assyria paid a terrible price once the walls came down. John Phillips comments, and he says, quote, We see waste and desolation everywhere. Empty cities, smoking ruins, and carrying birds of prey descending from on high to feast upon the corpses of the slain. Rain after rain, the kings of Nineveh gloated over the sufferings they inflicted on their terrified neighbors. We catch glimpses of bold and brutal men marching in invincible ranks filled with lust for war and rapine, spoil, and power. End quote. So because of the cruelty and paganism of the Assyrians, the Hebrew people had deep-rooted disdain, hatred, against this nation. The prophet Nahum spoke against Assyria, indicating that they were ripe for slaughter. And Nahum is a sequel and a dramatic contrast with the book of Jonah. 100 years after Nineveh's repentance, right here in Jonah, it was leveled destroyed, judged by God, for their repentance did not last beyond 745 B.C. Listen to the words of the prophet Nahum, chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots. Horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies. All because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts. 
And I will lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you, verse 6, and make you vile and set up you as a spectacle. And I will come about that all who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 13 The prophet declares, and he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. He will make Nineveh a desolation, parched like the wilderness. Today you can find the ruins of this once great city on the edge of Mosul, Iraq. Someone from our last service was uh, just there within the last year. Still an evil place. Looks like a mound of dirt which is important in the study of biblical archaeology because it reveals the promises of God and the fulfillment of his word. It was to this city in its heyday, and they had their day, that Jonah was called to go and preach the word of God. And in verse 1 and verse 2, we have God's definitive commission. And in verse 3, Jonah's absolute defiance. Defiance. Defiance towards God. And beloved, I tell you, defiance toward God always presupposes a definitive revelation from God. Defiance towards God presupposes a definitive revelation from God. In other words, defiance accepts and defiance knows what the will of God is the commanded will of God, and refuses to do it. Defiance. And then comes the key to the book, which we'll get to in a few weeks, and the reason why Jonah headed for Tarshish and not for Nineveh. God said, go northeast. Jonah went southwest. Literally. Chapter 3, verse 10, look what happens. When God saw their deeds, this is after Jonah finally makes it, against his will, but not against God's will, by the way. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, and he said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. There's a skeleton that lives in the closet of many Christians. they'd be ashamed to acknowledge it. But it's a skeleton for which they can easily identify with Jonah and they just don't realize it. (laughs) It's not the skeleton of excessive drinking, which is a skeleton for some. It's not the skeleton of watching pornography on the internet, which is a skeleton for some men, unfortunately, many men. 
It's not the skeleton of drug use for a believer, which is uncommon to most, but it is a hook for some. It's not the skeleton of using profanity six days a week and then no profanity on Sunday because you know you have to be holy on Sunday. You have to make a good show. But this is a skeleton that is ever so subtle, yet very real. And it is that they are angry with God. Believers. Indignant with God. But in their attempt to display Christian faithfulness, they mask it in public. They mask it on Sunday. But secretly, deep down within, they're angry at God. They rage against God. Because the God they know and serve hasn't always performed in a manner that meets with their approval. They'll cry out to God, why am I stuck in this marriage? Why am I stuck with this spouse? Why did I have to go through divorce like this? Why did I have to be deserted by my husband? Why did I have to grow up without a father? Why did I have to suffer the abuse that I suffered? Those are sad, tragic events in one's lives, but unfortunately many people, they'll blame God. And they live like this. Year after year. Miserable. So why does Jonah pray such a prayer? Chapter 4, verse 1. It greatly displeased Jonah. He became angry. Angry at who? It wasn't the Ninevites. He was angry at the one that provided them grace. God himself. He resented God's grace on the people he utterly despised. Talk about prejudice. He hated the Ninevites, so he can be angry at no one else but God. He feared that God would show mercy, that he'd show mercy to the very people he hated, so he runs in the opposite direction. And then, verse 3, chapter 1, on the heels of God's definitive commission, we have Jonah's defiant response. Now, the nature of disobedience that's being conveyed in verse 3 is deep, (laughs) completely rebellious. The fact that it mentions Tarshish three times in one verse is enough to show us how determined this man was to run contrary to the will and the purpose of God. It says, the word of the Lord came. The word of the Lord came. Next word. Verse 3, chapter uh, chapter 1, verse 3. But. (laughs) But Jonah. That's a bad word to follow. A command of God. But is a good word, like in Ephesians 2. (laughs) We were sinners, born into sin. Slaves of the devil himself. But God delivered us. But God. The word of the Lord came, but Jonah went the other way. The word of the Lord came, it appears over 100 times in the Old Testament. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. The word of the Lord came to Micah. The word of the Lord came to Hosea. And out of all of God's called and commissioned prophets, Jonah is the only one that blatantly defied God. 
Some questioned the call. Some feared the command. Some hesitated, but they did not deny and defy his call, as did Jonah. And then in addition to his defiance, I believe that as we read the text, he's obviously convinced himself that the circumstances of his life at this time of running away provide for him some kind of false assurance within that, while this must be God's plan, to where he has so much peace in his heart, quote-unquote, that he goes down to the bottom of the ship and sleeps like a little baby. If anyone is in rebellion against God, running contrary to God's will and God's purpose and God's word, and you sleep well at night, you've convinced yourself that you're going in the right direction. That this must be God's will. But let it be known. Very important. Let this be known. Mere circumstances in life should never and can never be mistaken to be any significance to us as being guidance from God. Many Christians live their lives that way. Well, this plus this equals this, and this circumstance and this circumstance just mess together. This has to be God's will for my life. But yet, it's contrary to either the black and white truth of God or the principles of truth within the Word of God. So everyone's looking for an open door. Paul had open doors in chapter 16, I believe it is, of Acts. He didn't go through them. He remained. He stayed. And you know what he did? He suffered persecution as a result. Think about it for a moment. I'm not trying to read anything into the text, but let's just think about this. This is a man. This is a sinner. This is a man of God. This is a man saved by grace. He's commanded to do something by God. He goes in the direct opposite way. So he receives this call from God. It's a distinct command. Perhaps he begins to puzzle over it, as many of us do, and we that's normal. He becomes determined in his mind not to do the will of God. This we know. So he flees. He does not want to face the word of God. He departs. Hmm. I think I'll go down to Joppa. Nineveh is northeast. Joppa's southeast, uh, southwest. And once I get there, I need to get out. I need, I need to go towards water instead of land. If I go that way, it's land. Bad land. Water. I think I'll go to Joppa. So he's on his way to Joppa. And perhaps at that time he's thinking, wow, you know what? Tarshish. Heard about that place a couple thousand miles away. Maybe I'll go there. And there I will not have to exercise my prophetic role. So he arrives and he goes down to the dock of the bay, singing on the dock of the bay. Maybe. Maybe. In Hebrew. And maybe he walks up to some ship's booth and he says, how much to come aboard? He says, well, this is going to Tarshish. He goes, you're kidding me. Are you serious? Man, I was just thinking about Tarshish on the way down here. It's going to Tarshish? How much? Well, let me tell you, it was such and such, but boy, do I have a deal for you. What's your name? My name's Jonah. Jonah, do I have a deal for you? Come here a minute. It's for a limited time because she's about ready to set sail. But we just had a cancellation. There's a bunk for you if you want it. How much? Such and such a price. Are you kidding me? Hold on one second. He checks his pocketbook. 
are you serious? Such and such? Yes, yeah, such and such. I have exactly a amount, right to the penny, such and such. <laughs> well, then it's your lucky day, isn't it? Man, this must be of God. Circumstances are so favorable for Tarshish, this must be of God. Now, per- perhaps at first he had no peace deep down within. We're just saying, what if, right? But he begins to think about this constantly on his trip from Nazareth down to Joppa, trying to convince himself of how to have peace in his heart in order to go the other way without conviction. Now, let's see now, he reasons. I've come down to Joppa. There just happens to be a ship going to Tarshish. I was thinking about Tarshish. I only had so much money, and boom, right to the penny, exact change. Wow. Amen, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) That kind of thinking is ridiculous. That kind of reasoning is nonsense. But many Christians live their lives that way. (laughs) Trust me. How many Christians ignore the word of God to go in the opposite direction of God only later to regret it deeply because they are Christians? Jonah had a word from God. He defiantly went in the opposite direction of God. And regardless of how circumstances line up, it is never right to do wrong. It is never right to do contrary to the word of God because of circumstances. I got myself into trouble like that a number of years ago. It was actually for the purpose of doing ministry. This circumstance lined up with this circumstance and everything just seemed to be right in line and right in order. However, deep down within, in retrospect, I know that God was raising up red flags in my mind according to Scripture with regard to someone who was involved who lacked character and who lacked integrity. And man, did I get thrown under the bus. I violated the conscious awareness of what Scripture said in light of the situation at hand because I wanted to do it so desperately. You pay the price. Does God love me? Yes. Did he love me all along? Yes. Am I a child of God? Yes. Am I still a child of God? Of course. But people run from the will of God, children of God, convincing themselves that the circumstances at hand and all these quote-unquote open doors, man, this must all equal the will of God for my life. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you have operated like that before? That's what I thought. (laughs) So, we continue down to our Joppa. We move on towards our little Tarshish. Everything seems to be working out to our favor. Seems to be working out to our favor. We feel guilty at first. And then eventually, we gain peace of mind by invariably violating our conscience until it finally stops screaming at us. Amen? Then, we're able to go down to the lowest part of our ship and lay down and sleep like a baby because I have peace in my heart with the situation. Peace in my heart. 
thank you, Lord. Nonsense. But it violates scripture over here. Yes, next word. But. You're listening to a teacher who's a false teacher. Yes, but every time I listen to him, I'm on my knees before my TV weeping. Why is that? It must be of God. Wrong. He's teaching contrary to the word of God. Be not a fool, amen. None of us. So there he is sleeping like a baby. Question. Did Jonah have a choice in the matter? In obeying or disobeying the definitive charge of God. As a child of God. Did he have a choice in the matter of obeying or disobeying the definitive charge of God? And in a sense, he did. He decided to deliberately to, to defy the word of God. But I'll tell you what, in certainty, he did not have a choice. He did not have a choice. God's will would be done through this prophet. In a sense, you may think you can run from God, and you can, in a sense. But I'll tell you what, in certainty, if you are his, and Jonah was one of the Lord's own, you will not run from God for long. In a sense, you might feel peace in your heart while you're in the midst of disobedience, in a sense, but in certainty, you have deceived yourself and will eventually do his will for his glory. You will. And then what happens in the process is something that's very dangerous. As you reason your way out of doing the will of God, you begin to invent in your mind idols. And you become, we become idolaters. Jonah will go on to pray. After he's sovereignly arrested by God, by a fish that God prepared to swallow Jonah, in the midst of his watery ordeal, and in the belly of this great fish prepared by God, he will pray in his near-death experience, Jonah 2, verse 8, with these words. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. The Hebrew word for vain idols literally means empty vanities. Empty vanities. John Calvin says this. He said this. He's been dead a while. But the theology of the man lives on. Quote, Empty vanities are all the inventions with which men deceive themselves. Jonah prays, Those who regard empty vanities forsake their faithfulness. Your translation may say, forsake their mercy. Kased is the word, and it literally means unfailing or steadfast love. It's kind of a strange expression, but this refers to God himself, the one who is our unfailing love, the one who is our mercy. He's the one that is our only source of mercy, the only source of grace that sinners receive, you see. And those who regard vain idols forsake the unfailing love and mercy of God.
You know what's interesting here? Is that before being swallowed by a great fish, that the sea had become increasingly stormy. Tempestuous, as the New King James and ESV translate it. I like that better. Tempestuous. Once Jonah's thrown overboard, immediately the storm ceases to rage. The response of the Gentiles on board, chapter 1, verse 16. What do they do? They feared God and worshipped Him with sacrifice and what? Obedience. So in a sense, they repent and believe. At the rage of God because of one disobedient prophet. Pagans. And how fascinating that the sea and the winds over the sea obey God when? Immediately. The winds and the sea obey God immediately. The great fish prepared by God to swallow Jonah in the sea at that moment, on that day, wherever he was thrown in, obeyed God. And then he vomited Jonah out onto dry land as God instructed that which he created to do for his sovereign purpose. The plant, chapter 4, verse 6. God made it to grow up over the head of Jonah overnight. And what did it do? It grew up overnight. He commanded a worm to damage that plant. And the worm damaged the plant. The scorching east wind and the sun, God caused to beat down on the head of Jonah till he wished himself dead. Did exactly what God prepared them to do. Not a minute too soon, not a minute too late. God spoke the universe into existence. How did it respond? When he said, let it be, it became. Genesis 1 verse 3, let there be light and there was light. And Genesis 1 contains no less than eight commandments of this type. So it's quite evident then, beloved, that God's speaking has a central role in creation. God speaks. And the elements obey. So the whole work of creation takes place by God speaking. Speaking it into existence. Each utterance of God in Genesis 1 has a specific meaning and each specifies exactly what will come forth. Psalm 33.6 says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were what? Made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. Verse 9, For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Think for a moment about the providence and judgment of God. You know how they're brought about? The providence of all things and the judgment of God in and through all things, they're brought about by the Lord speaking, the Word of God. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 37. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? And we all answer to that, what? Yep. 
<laughs> yep. John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, apart from Him. Nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus Christ, the Word, Logos, He is the Word, and He controls the world that He spoke into existence. So the Word of God is God speaking. The Bible that's in your lap is God speaking. So all those created elements in Jonah, which are incidental to the story of Jonah, in other words, these are secondary to the story. This story is not a story about a fish. It's not about a plant. It's not about an east wind. It's not about the scorching sun. It's not about Nineveh. It's not about the Ninevites. It's not about the Gentiles on board the ship. This story is about God and one child of God. That's what it's about. specifically and the work of God and a sign of God that he would be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth and would raise up on the third day. So, all of those created elements do exactly what God ordained them to do in exactly the precise way and the right timing, perfect timing that he planned for them to do through the spoken word. However, there's one essential part to the story that didn't obey. And that is the one who is a child of God who's created in the very image of God. A man, specifically Jonah, who's a prophet. Mankind, the only creatures created in the image of God. Human beings. And this one, a prophet no less, defiantly disobeyed God's commanded will. You know something, beloved? We may choose to disobey. We may choose to defy God's commanded will. Okay? You and I may choose to defy the commanded will of God. Okay? You're a child of God. In other words, you're a sinner saved by grace. You're covered by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, once and for all, set apart, you will inherit glory. Although you can choose to disobey and, def- and defy his commanded will, you will not disobey, you will not defy, you will not disregard, nor in any way damage his sovereign will. Will not. You might run like Jonah, right? Right? But God will in his own way and in his perfect timing strike fear and shock into your life to awaken you out of a rebellious stupor if you are indeed one of his. For the sake of what? Primarily that his will be done. And secondarily, to destroy and kill the vain idols that we create in our minds. The the invention of empty vanities that Jonah prayed while he was in the belly of this fish. Because those are the things that we deceive ourselves with to convince ourselves that we're in the will of God because I feel this and this was here and this was there in perfect timing, but all the while we're denying the truth of God. Attempting to run away from His presence. His presence. You can't. Who can run from, who can flee from the presence of God? Nobody. 
people in hell don't escape the presence of God. Because as Revelation 13 tells us, it's Jesus, the Christ, the Christ, the Lamb of God, whose wrath is being unleashed in hell. It's his judgment. His judgment, he's there. No one can escape. Mark Dever has commented, quote, people who are preparing for heaven are the people who are increasingly centered on God and God's presence already. Dever points out that the opposite is also true. He continues, Hell is the place where God and his pleasing presence are absent. For God is present in hell only to judge. And the individuals whom scripture promises will go to hell are individuals whose lives are already marked by indifference to God. Lukewarmness. Jesus said, I would rather you be hot for me or cold for me. For if you are lukewarm, I will. I will do like the, way, the, the fish did with Jonah. Vomit you out of my mouth. Dever. By indifference to God. By coldness to God. By opposition to God. These individuals follow laws different than God's laws and pursue loves that are different than God's loves. End quote. Christ has fulfilled the law. So if I'm in Christ and covered by the blood of the Lamb, to do anything that is contrary to His will and convince myself that this is the will of God when it's contrary to His spoken word, then I've convinced myself by way of building up some type of ideology which is idolatry in the end, you see. So does that sound like the life you live today? Are you characterized, is your life rather characterized by loving what God does not love and ignoring what he does love? And you profess to be a Christian. I mean, we just read a story about an angry, runaway prophet of God. Are you running from God today? Have you been on the run for a long, long time? You come to church but you're on the run. I ask you this question, why are you running from the ways and the will of God? If you're covered by the blood of the Lamb, what are you running from? Why? What are you putting your hope in? What are you putting your trust in? Is it the finished work of Christ? And then moving and walking from grace while basked in grace? This grace in which we stand? Or are you running in the direct opposite direction of his will? Are you one perhaps who's angry with God this morning? Perhaps you've been angry for a long time. Then I trust that the Holy Spirit has you here today to reveal this to your heart, that you can confess this, repent of this, surrender this, so that he'll encapsulate you with his grace, with his mercy, to show you the, the, the vastness of his love for you. And that although you went through that in the past, or although you're going through that now, God's will in the end is to glorify himself, and in the end it will be for your good. That's what we sang this morning. All things work together for the good of those who what? Are called. Perhaps you're one of those who've mistaken 
mere circumstances in life. This has to be God's will because this, this, and this. Someone told me this morning that they finished a Bible college and they really wanted to go do this one facet of ministry, perform this one facet of ministry. It was to go somewhere abroad. And this individual told me that because so-and-so had gone there and had the same birth date as her, began to confirm to her that this was God's will. And not only would her birthday match someone else who had been there, it was three other people. One that was over there and two that had returned. So because our birthdays were the same, this must be of God. And thank, I thank God that she shared that because she said, you know what? When it didn't happen, I was angry at God for a long time until I came to this church. Don't mistake circumstances in life for being the Word of God. I had people try to convince me in counseling that why would God bring that man who's a soulmate to me into my life if he didn't want me to go off with him because my husband and life with him is miserable. God wants something better for me. That is contrary to Scripture. I will tell you, guarantee you, that is not God's will for your life. Period. But I love this guy and I want to marry this guy or I love this girl. I know a man who married a woman who knew more scripture than he's ever known, could recite the Bible forward and backwards. He married her and the wheels fell off the wagon in his life. She deceived him. She took him for everything he had. And he's bitter at God to this day for that. But he told me once, he said, you know what? There were certain red flags that were coming up in my life about her. And I said, then why'd you marry her? Because everything was planned and set in order. Family was coming out. Scripture declared that this person's character did not line up with Scripture. This person's integrity didn't line up with Scripture. He violated the truth he knew and proceeded to move forward in marrying this person because the circumstances were just all meshing together. Tragedy. God created Israel by his word and he would go to save Nineveh by his word. And he's spoken today, beloved, through his word to reach and to minister to you whatever category you may fall into. Perhaps you're in neither one of those, any of those categories. So I say this, rejoice because of his grace to keep you on the path of doing his commanded will. Because his sovereign will will not be violated. Period. This is a man who violated the commanded will of God. He could not violate the sovereign will of God. He ended up exactly where God commanded him to go. Did he not? Yes, he did. In a painful way. In a stinky way. Imagine how he smelled when he came out of that fish. God's will was done. So though Jonah, this prophet, violated the call of God, I'm sure that he found some type of rest and assurance that was false rest and assurance, probably by violating his conscience to the point that he had fallen fast asleep. And then in the midst of the belly of the great fish, Jonah cried out, chapter 2, verse 2, he cried out for help 
from the depth of Sheol. And then his prayer concludes with this monumental confession that we must not miss. In Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, his prayer concludes with what? Salvation is of the Lord. You had nothing to do with your salvation. It's the grace of God alone in Christ Jesus, who like Jonah, who was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, was three days and three nights in the grave because he was crucified, because he bore the wrath of the Father to appease the Father in atoning for the sins of the many that he would call and bring to himself to save for eternity. The gospel. The gospel. Salvation is from the Lord. And it guarantees that those he saves are no longer enemies, but they're his own children. By grace, we are, Ephesians 2.19, no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of who, beloved? Of God. God. So our home is heaven which is much more of a person than it is merely a place. For he is the center of it all. He's the center and the source of our salvation. He's the center and the source of our sanctification, beloved. So we obey because we have been enabled to do so. Now, if you're here this morning and you are on the run from God and you worry that you've run for too long and you've run too far from God to be saved... If that's your thinking this morning, you can be assured that by this account in Jonah, you have not. It's probably why you're here. To hear the glorious truth of a runaway prophet that you have not run too far, you have not run too hard, you have not run too long to which you can't be saved. You've heard the word of God this morning. You've heard the glorious truth of Jesus Christ that he calls sinners to repent and believe in the gospel, the good news. He paid it all. There's nothing you can do to earn it. He paid it all. And perhaps you're here because he's calling you to himself today. If he calls you to repent, he'll enable you to repent. He'll turn you around. And I pray that he has you here to arrest you just as he did Jonah, to turn you around, to do his will, to go his way for his glory and his and your good for eternity as a child of God saved by grace. So repent and believe in the gospel and you shall be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder that through a runaway prophet, an angry prophet, one of your own, that your will, although as you commanded your will, it was violated, your sovereign will in the end was worked out just as you had ordained. Thank you for this glorious truth. Thank you, Lord, for the reminders within. And Lord, I ask that you will grace me along with my brothers and sisters here this morning not not to run from that which you have 
commanded us through the scriptures. But may we be reminded that we're enabled, Lord, to live out the faith that's been imparted to us. We're enabled to work out the salvation that has been wrought in us. We've been enabled, Lord, to live our lives in a manner worthy of the calling of being saved, of being children of God, heirs of heaven. Children of the household of faith. Pray that you'll bless your people this morning and may we be reminded in whatever category we may fall in this morning to step up and out and understand your grace and your mercy and your love for each one of us individually. That any anger towards you would be would dissipate today. You cleanse the hearts and the minds of those, Lord, who are blame you for something of the past. May you provide rest for their souls, encouragement, edification, to see your grace in a new light, your sovereign will as the ruling agent of the universe and by grace to be submitted to that sovereign will. Lord, for the souls that have walked in here this morning who are in rebellion against you, who are not saved, I pray that you, by your grace, would cause them to come alive in Christ, to be born again of the Spirit, to become children of God this day, For the glory, the namesake of our Savior, Jesus Christ, it's in his name we pray. Amen.